Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Jeffrey shares his eclectic path from two non-target schools, shifting to night classes so he could earn money in real estate his junior year, and how he ended up at several boiler rooms. He also covers his eventual pivot to break into Morgan Stanley and why that didn't end up being a long-term stay, how he added value at HSBC, and his rough transition out of a family office that was dabbling in venture capital. Learn how he made each transition and advice he would give his younger self. Enjoy. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It'd be great if you could just start by giving the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure. So my background is probably a little bit more eclectic than most. Um, In 2008-9, I started a real estate company. It was a buyer's only brokerage. We were able to take advantage of uh, the displacement in 08 uh, to grow a business. Uh, Shortly thereafter, I went into banking. Uh, I spent the next five years in banking between Morgan Stanley and HSBC. While at HSBC, I was asked by a family office to help them set up a venture capital fund in New York. So I left banking. I spent the next two years of my life as a partner in VC, coupled with a crowdfunding platform. And once we had completed the first fund of investments, the family decided not to invest anymore. Um, So I'd left and started a consulting firm in 2015. so that's kind of a broad strokes of my background. Awesome. So let's start all the way back in college. So where was finance always on the radar? And, and for clarity, uh, you started right out of school um, 2010. You graduated from Toro. Is that correct? Right. Yes. And so what was the kind of the first gig out of school and how, what led you to that? Sure. So um, even going one step beyond that or before that, uh, after high school, I graduated in Great Neck, Long Island. Um, after high school, I went to Baruch College for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and finance was really never top of mind. I actually wanted to go into law at first. So mm-hmm. I took a lot of law classes. Um, and certainly at this point in time, after all the contracts I've seen, I can, I can say I'm dangerous enough to, to know a little bit. Um, so I started Baruch, worked there for two years, um, that, uh, went to school there for two years, and then started working in real estate. So I sat to get my, um, my real estate broker's license. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2008, I actually switched from Baruch to Toro, um, ended up taking night classes there while I was working full time um, in real estate. 
Um, I'd worked for a buyer's only brokerage first um, called Elkin Associates, which is still around today. Uh, learned a lot from the principal there on honestly, just on how to communicate professionally with people. Again, this was my first. Was that a small, was that a small like brokerage? Like how many, how many? It was small. Uh, I think when I got there, I was maybe one of three. By the time I left, I was maybe one of five or six, something along those lines. And this was at 0809. So like, was there, there a lot of deal volume then, or was it, was it just like opportunistic Um, buyers were, were jumping in? Yeah. So, so the principal actually had a really interesting system. Um, as I mentioned before, kind of this, this notion of a buyer's brokerage is one where we carried no inventory. Um, we had no showings per se, but, um, but rather we were finding the buyers and acting as agents and liaisons to those buyers and, and really helping them find the ideal piece of property for them. Got it. So that was, that was kind of the uh, genesis of the idea to, to grow this into a kind of a larger concept. Um, so when I had left Elica, and by the way, I was born here, uh, but my parents are Russian uh, speaking. Mm-hmm. So I speak the language fluently and I was able to kind of capitalize on, on having that language and kind of finding a niche market where there were a lot of people from Eastern Europe coming over to the U.S., specifically to New York, to buy both residential and commercial properties. So can I, before uh, you continue on that, this is kind of like right after your sophomore year in college, you did two years at Baruch and then all of a sudden you switched to night classes. It, where is Toro, by the way, New York area? New York, yeah. It's right on 23rd yeah. between 5th and 6th. So you switched to night classes so you could work full-time in real estate. Why? Why do that? Is you felt like there was a good opportunity? You felt like you needed to pay bills? Like what was the, what was the main motivation? Uh, yeah, it was a little bit of both. Um, paying bills was definitely top of mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there... Certainly, there are a lot of people that can say that wealth is relative and they're comfortable at varying degrees of earning potential or income. Um, I saw real estate, firstly, as not being too, frankly, difficult to break into as far as barriers of entry into getting into a business. You really just need a license and a good attitude in order to to kind of get into the market. Yeah. Um, again, it it was kind of a, I don't believe in luck. I believe in opportunity meeting preparedness. But like, talk to me and, a little bit about like you're at Baruch and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to go, did, was it something where you kind of started talking and real estate was, was on your mind where you may, I, I don't know, like what, was there a mentor that was like, Hey, you should do this real estate thing. And you're like, actually, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to switch colleges and I'm going to, you know, still go at night. Like what was, what was yeah, the Look, I, I'm a big believer in anything is possible. Mm-hmm. And um, and even I'll talk about it later, kind of how I apply to consulting and building a consulting firm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I noticed that when I started out in real estate, Wednesdays and Sundays are the biggest days for, for just mass showings. And I could always schedule my classes uh, and my own personal life schedule around those dates. Mm-hmm. But as you get more and more involved in real estate, as you become more busy, more in demand, more customers are looking for different properties and, and you have to spend a significant amount of time um, on work, I decided that I, I really wanted to do that more than not necessarily cool. then go to school. I knew that it was important, mm-hmm. um, but I was more focused on making money and kind of a snowball effect. It was working. So I wanted to spend more time on what was working. Totally. That, that, um, that makes a lot of sense, especially when you start kind of getting these, these checks, right? Like these big checks at a young age. So tell me a little bit about like what a normal transaction looked like and how the, what was the commission structure like for, for this buyer's brokerage? 
Sure. Um, so I was fortunate enough. Again, it was a small firm initially. So I think our split was something like 50-50. Maybe it was 60-40 to me. Um, I think it was 50-50. Yep. Um, I, he, he generated all the leads. So I was really just, I saw myself as a warm body and just wanted to be a sponge and learn from, from him. Yep. Um, so, so a typical transaction initially was probably a residential apartment in Manhattan at the time, an average apartment was a little over a million dollars. Um, so that was kind of what we were working on. I, or rather I was working on, whereas the principal was taking transactions of three to 5 million or higher. Um, I never, I never went through like the normal route of a real estate broker. You go through rentals and then you go into sales. Got it. I kind of skipped the rental part and went straight into sales and especially being kind of not right after high school, but not enough after college to have been a full blown professional at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very green and especially in the way that I was communicating with people. So that again, kind of going back to that, I still Rough around the edges, like my... in terms of your clients, like, what do you mean? How, how, how are you green? You just weren't professional. <laughs> so, so I'll say this, uh, I'll never forget. I showed up um, to his office for an interview with the firm. Mm-hmm. And I showed up in, I don't know, a button down in jeans. And before he even says hello, he goes, are you seriously not wearing a suit? So that should give some <laughs> semblance of how green I was in terms of well, coming to real estate. You're a professional, right, exactly. Real estate, it's like all about estate. like how looking, you know, looking the part. <laughs> exactly. Great. And, um, and that was kind of my, my introduction, let's say, to, to the professional world of, uh, of New York City. Awesome. Okay, so you... Uh... So you learned quickly, let's put it that way. And uh, learned quickly. Yep. you started doing well. And so he started giving you more and more deals, even if they're, you know, at the million dollar range, you're still, the commission's what, like two and a half, three percent, your, your side? It's, right. It's yep. Percent. Yep. So what is so that? It's about one and a half percent. So typically in a real estate transaction, let's say there's anywhere between five to 6% of right. the total transaction uh, mm-hmm. paid out in commissions. There's typically a buy and a sell side. Um, whereas each of those would get about 50, 50. So yep. let's say three points to, to each firm. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, there's a further split. Uh, again, as I mentioned between me and him, it was again, 50, 50. Right. So, so you're looking at like say 15,000 to the firm, right. The million dollar transaction, you get half of that about 7,000. No, no, no. I would get half. That is half, right? Three points to the firm. And then I would get half of that. Right. So three points to the firm. Oh, three points to the firm. Right. So 30 and then 15 to you. Right, which right. is a nice little check, uh, 20 years old or whatever you were back yeah, then. Uh, yeah, it was not bad. It was not bad. And doing those once a month wasn't, wasn't too bad either. Yeah. So it's tough to, to say, Hey, what, you know, I want to go to school full time. I get it. Okay. So you're, you're doing well. Um, there tell me, um, yeah, so you end up finishing, but tell me why not just continue doing this and growing with the firm. Are you, you kind of split out on your own? Is that what, what so, so I, um, one of my best friends to this day, uh, whose father is, is deeply involved in real estate and, and had a development firm, um, developed a few projects in the city. We decided that kind of taking my salesmanship, I suppose, and, and his contacts, both of us, again, similar backgrounds, had the opportunity to essentially capitalize on uh, this influx of capital coming from overseas that we were just honestly able to speak the language. Um, look, again, I was 20... 21, maybe. Um, so there's no doubt that every single person who is, who is dealing with myself or my partner looked at us as kids, but they knew that we were an essential part of the transaction. We were hustling as hard as anybody else out there was um, running around and, and 
was a lot of your work like looking was a lot of your work looking for the properties or was a lot of your work just in the actual negotiations with the sellers once the, once the both. property was at both? Both. Um, be, because of the and, nature of a lot of these transactions, yeah. we really represented them on their behalf here stateside. Got it. Because oftentimes they would really uh, only come here once or twice, maybe once for a final tour and once for the closing. So these, these are, a lot of these are high net worth uh, yes. individuals from Russia, basically, yeah. or yeah. Ukraine or, or Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. So you're, you're basically doing this for several years. sounds like. Um, I, only about two, two it, years. It okay. developed really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, and what changed? What suddenly, what changed? So 2000, um, maybe 10, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 11, something like that. Uh, I really had this pull to wall street. Um, I think, I think we mentioned that I was a, I was a member of wall street oasis. I went to the conferences, trying to break into the business. Um, I ultimately landed a job at a, I mean, looking back on it now, knowing about the business was totally a chop shop. Um, if you've watched the boiler room or if you watched uh, Wolf of wall street, I've gotten my seat kicked. I had my hand duct taped to a headset told that if I wanted to go to a bathroom, I had to disconnect it. Um, we, we, we did that. That's how I got licensed. That's how I got my series seven, um, training, training under kind of senior advisors or financial advisors, uh, opening up accounts for them. And then ultimately being able to open up my own accounts. Um, I total boiler room. It sounds like you don't want to share the name of of it right now, but, but so, so the name I use, I mean, it's all public information because series seven, I mean, anybody can look me up on FINRA. I have no disclosures, so I can disclose that and I'm happy to prove that. Yeah. Uh, the first firm I worked with was a firm called HFP. Um, I don't think they're around anymore. Yeah. And that's where I got licensed. Okay. Um, the team that I'd worked with was focused on equities mm-hmm. and I think kind of noted what was going on and, and wanted to break out of there. So we ended up leaving to a firm called Maxim Group, which is actually a, now certainly a sizable institution. Mm-hmm. Um, worked there for, for about a year or two, um, just gaining more knowledge, understanding about markets, uh, truly being a financial advisor there, cold calling people, getting turned down left and right, yeah. uh, right, off to, right after Madoff. Um, you know, I've, I've been called Madoff a million and a half times on cold calls that we would be making. Um, so I think- That's if, interesting, um, actually. That's, people started yeah, using that as an insult. My constitution of being turned down, it is 100% to that job. Um, I've, I've never been turned down more in my life. And that was, and that was all for a whopping salary of maybe, maybe $200 a week, maybe. So why um, go to this? I mean, once you saw the writing on the wall, after, I mean, how long were you doing these boiler room type cold call? Uh, type I things? think between, between HFP and Maxim, where ultimately I got my 65 and 63 licenses. Mm-hmm. I think that entire tenor was maybe a year, a year and a half in total. Okay. Um, which was a lot of time spent studying and getting licensed. Were you second guessing um, yourself? Or are you thinking this is just what the this is just what I have to put up with at the beginning to, to get? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, second guessing myself. Um, there Especially when you were making, you know, between you know around an average of fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, you know, thirty thousand. Thankfully, I I had capital to live on. I wasn't out there blowing money on. Uh, on clubs and bottles and, and grills and all of in that. an expensive car or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 nothing like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I bought myself an apartment basically to keep my living costs down. And, and that's what I spent the money on. 
Um, so I was able to survive on, you know, on that two two fifty a week salary for quite some time. Um, mm -hmm. Went through that again, like I said, maybe a year, eighteen months. And once I had all of my licenses, I um, decided to upgrade, so to speak. And I left and joined, uh, which was at the time Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there through the merger and final acquisition of Smith Barney by Morgan Stanley. Got it. And I can say that um, they didn't duct, walked, they didn't duct tape your hand to the phone and tell you no the no bathroom they, and Morgan Stanley. They were a totally different different story. But when I walked in there, I I'll never forget that I I I thought I was pretty smart. I thought I made some money in my life. I walked in there and, and honestly, by everything people were saying, I felt like I knew nothing. Um, just everything was totally wiped out. They were talking about yield curves and compressions and derivatives trading. And I was, I can only imagine I was a deer caught in headlights. Mm. So I think to this day, institutionally speaking, again, from my personal experience, uh, Morgan Stanley probably has some of the smartest people out there, period. Uh, again, sure. just from my intimate knowledge of people that I've personally worked with. Um, so, so you started your title was your title was a portfolio manager or whatnot. No, but what my, you... my starting title was um, financial advisor associate, maybe something okay. like that. And so you started what what was the salary there? Pretty low still, right? Forty, fifty thousand. Um, I think starting salary was about sixty. Sixty, okay, yeah, not bad. And but bonus. Tell me about the bonus structure. Was there any? Was it like just based on how many people you brought yeah, in? Yeah, bonus structure was tiered. Um, it really depends. There was kind of like three buckets, and if you hit two out of three, depending on the tiers that you got in, you got different bonuses. Got I think max bonus per quarter was about thirty-five hundred, um, okay. if I'm remembering correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and that really depended on how much assets you brought in and what was your what was the revenue? What was the bottom line revenue? There was a third one, but I don't remember. I don't remember what it was. Okay. So that's helpful though. Like a max of around an additional 14 K a year. Um, yeah. Um, or you yeah. said, you said 7,500 a quarter. Um, 3,500 a quarter. Oh, 3,500 a quarter. So yeah. So about, yeah, so about 14 K a year. Um, if, you hit, if you hit all the targets. Got it. Okay. So, you know, you were making maybe an extra seven, 10 K a year, um, potentially on top of the 60. <laughs> Or not yeah, even. So, or they were so hard to hit. Morgan Stanley story was really interesting too. Yeah, tell me. Um, I, I, when I went into Morgan Stanley, the way that I got in there, again, kind of using using my Russian connection, if I can call it that. Mm -hmm. um, I worked with a senior advisor there who who had a significant amount of assets under under management, mm -hmm. and I went to go work for the branch on Fifty Seventh and Madison, which is my again, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt because it certainly changed by this point. Yep. But at the time was the largest uh, international branch uh, in the Morgan Stanley network. Meaning there they had two, the most international clients? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, there were two floors. I think one floor was dedicated to South America altogether. Wow. And then the other floor was just uh, a mixture of both US-based and international. Okay. And, and again, kind of going back to what I said, using, using my, um, my second language, uh, I teamed up with another Russian speaking advisor who was quite senior um, and knew a lot of the senior senior people in Morgan Stanley mm -hmm. and Smith Barney and, and essentially began working with him, helping him manage the portfolio. But how did you even get in touch with this guy? I'm sure there's a lot of other Russians in New York contacting him, trying to get an internship, trying to get in the door. Why? What made you stand out? Uh, probably because of my, my access to those families that were buying real estate. 
Um, and, and I was actually put in touch with him by one of those families. He was one of their advisors. Um, you know, I was so warm intro. Actually, I'm sorry. Warm. So a warm intro basically. It was a warm intro. intro. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was a warm intro from, from somebody who again was a client of mine several years before that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was speaking with them just on an unrelated matter. Um, and, uh, and I told them how much I was getting paid and <laughs> they asked me to repeat it a few times over the phone and then say it in English because I was speaking in Russian just to make sure <laughs> it was $200. So they were like, what are you doing? You know, my, my guy works at Morgan Stanley and, and why don't you talk with him? Um, so I spoke with him. There was a lot of overlap. Have you graduated um, here at this point? You had graduated way like yeah, with yeah, the night yeah, classes, you finished it. I graduated. Okay, okay yeah. got it. So you're um, still, so now you're just like, you're going from making good money, you buy yourself a little apartment so you don't spend money on yeah. stupid things <laughs> and yeah. force yourself to save. So that's good, smart at a young age. Um, and you're just working, working, working. You eventually get into Morgan Stanley as a working for this guy. What was yep. it like working for him? Um, Honestly. So if I'm, I'm trying to find the words to say it because working with a, um, original Russian, so to speak, uh, FOB style Russian is, and can be very difficult, um, from a cultural and simply translation perspective, um, they may come off very rude or coarse or direct but they don't you like know something, that culturally didn't... like oh like you're an idiot like why are you doing this right without without meaning to like harm you emotionally but didn't they'll, they'll culturally but culturally didn't you know that already since this where you're yeah calling. so that's so that calling I'm you stupid the words, every day right? like, yeah for me it was fine there were yeah. i mean literally like i had um I don't know what you call them. Executive assistants come up to me sometimes because he'd be like yelling through his door at me something. And be like, are you really like, you should tell me you, why wow, you're going to take that. And I'm looking at it I'm like, yeah, what else am I going to do? Leave. Um, and again, like I, I've been turned down many times in my life again, because of cold calling and investors and deals and all that stuff. So to me, I had a job, I was working, I was learning. So, okay, there's a guy yelling at me once in a while. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to learn from my mistakes and just move on with my life. I'm not going to take it personally. That's a great um, attitude. And it's hard to do when you're young, but I think you had had enough rejection and screaming from, uh, you kind of probably got numb to it, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. and you understood everyone the listening culture. out there, everyone kind of going into it. Don't ever take anything personally. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, Take emotion out of things. Uh, if you feel emotional about something, just take a breath, walk away, go to the bathroom, go for a walk, whatever, and and think about the reality of the situation. You know, I can now in coronavirus times, I can say it now more than ever before. It's just be thankful for what you have. You have a job, you have a education, you're learning, you're getting paid. Just keep doing it until something better comes up. Yeah. So the whole the whole you know fortuitous introduction here to this to this uh, tough manager but you know at morgan stanley was this because you were actively looking because you're getting paid so little were you talking with people like how did this even come up i know so, they intro, they're like oh they, they were shocked and they just introduced you but were you doing other interviews yeah. yeah um i can say that up until so i started um my consulting firm in 2015. Mm-hmm. So up until 2016, I can tell you that I've been constantly on the job hunt. 
Um, and that's a year after I started a consulting firm. Why is so, that? Have you never been happy where you are? Because you feel like that's never. I've always had this urge to grow and to learn and to kind of build. Yeah. Um, I think that I've only really been able to define that more recently in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, like 2016, 2017, as the consulting firm grew and as things became to kind of make sense and fall in line, um, I was able to define kind of what what I want to do and how I want to do it. But the reason I was always looking for it, yeah, I mean, I was not satisfied with my income. I was not satisfied with the corporate bureaucracy that I was constantly finding myself in. I was finding way more efficient ways to do certain tasks um, that is not sub like subjectively if it more efficient, but objectively more efficient to do something. Yeah. And because I was working at large institutions with, you know, bureaucracy, whether shorter or long, I was unable to do these and things and, and kind of unable to resolve inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. And that always really, really bothered me. Um, so, so that's kind of why I've always been looking to jump around and to move around. If you look at my resume, my LinkedIn, you'll probably see, you know, I spent no more than two years in any one position. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because of that kind of change. I, I would, looking back on it, absorb as much information as I could and just move on to the next thing. Okay. So that kind of is a good dovetail into your move out of Morgan Stanley. So you had, you were oh, there for Morgan, right. a so, year and eight months. And then, yeah, I mean, you had, yeah. eventually you, you, were, you were obviously looking as you're getting screamed at. Um, yeah. Decent amount of, you know. So, so always kind of looking yes and no. Um, Morgan Stanley ended up buying out the rest of Smith Barney. And through that transition, two things happened several months apart. The first is that Morgan Stanley closed down the private wealth management groups in London, which represented all of oh. Europe, Eastern Europe, Southeast Asia, all that stuff. Mm. And when they did that, because of, uh, probably a my language, but more importantly, my partner's contacts in Morgan Stanley, we were able to begin to manage pretty much all Russian, Ukrainian, and Kazakh speaking accounts um, overnight, Um, which was fantastic for several months until Morgan Stanley started implementing and redoing enhanced due diligence on every single client account. And again, going Again, maybe I have a little bit deeper of insight because I, I have the cultural insight as well. Mm-hmm. When you're asking somebody, and, and I think given my experience, this applies to just as much Russians as it does people from China or Asia or India or anywhere international. When you start asking, you know, prove your funds, show us your receipts, show us your contract, show us this, show us that, you know, just to hold my money, I'm not interested in, in giving you this information especially when there's other, other resources in the world that would. Hmm. So that would um, let you hold the money without asking for all this additional backup. Right. And, and, and by the way, like totally kosher money, big businesses, international businesses that are being run by a lot of these people, mm-hmm. a lot of them were already U S based and they just like needed to prove 10 years ago where the money came from or something like that. So it was really just more of a headache for people than anything else. Yeah. Okay. And and frankly, they started closing accounts, let alone people withdrawing. So that was kind of the genesis of my start at looking at international banks and why ultimately I ended up at HSBC. Okay. And so tell me about that transition. So um, much like any bank, it's kind of a day you're there, the next day you're not. 
Um, there's no like two week notice. There's no anything like that. You're there, then you're not. So one day I was working at Morgan Stanley and I think I timed it. So I had about a few weeks off in between and I can kind of get my head right. And I don't think I traveled, but I just kind of took time off and read sure. a book and got ready for the next adventure. Um, HSBC was really interesting. Um, it gave me a uh, really, really interesting perspective of the difference between a Morgan Stanley style institution um, versus an HSBC style institution, where you really have a more client facing retail bank as opposed to, I don't want to call it institutional because HSBC is also institutional, but but um, more so, less the retail. Right, exactly. Maybe. More, yeah. right. Again, I don't want to call it more sophisticated or not. They're, they're both highly sophisticated, but there's just, yeah. there's, a, there's kind of a clear difference. There, there's no retail banking in Morgan Stanley. So that is obviously a huge, huge component of HSBC. Great. So I was initially brought in, again, kind of, I have a book of business, I'm going to bring it in, yada, yada, yada. Ultimately, I was, uh, I was able to kind of manage a number of different branches from the perspective of them dropping me in and me figuring out a way to generate additional revenue. Hmm. So whether it was... That sounds very different from what you were doing before. It sounds like you were doing client relationships and helping uh, manage money. You're doing trades for for these uh, Russian clients, basically, right? Right. And then you moved into HSBC and you're almost more like an internal consultant there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's, Certainly not what it felt like wild there, but looking back on it, yes, that's how I would describe it. Did you go over there knowing that or was it something that you kind of fell into? Uh, Something that that we just fell into. There was- um, Weren't you so busy? Like, weren't you super busy managing the pe- the book of business you brought over and bringing them over? Yeah. So, so my, the partner that I'd worked with at Morgan Stanley, um, I think ended up leaving possibly to UBS or RBC, okay. something like that. And I told him, I don't want any of the business. I'm never going to go after your business. I'm never going to go after these clients. Like I, I wanted to have a good relationship with him. And frankly, I wanted to get, I wanted to, so, so taking a quick step back, yeah. um, I wanted to ultimately get out of a role or a business where my compensation was tied to commission or production. And obviously it's different now, um, but I had been working in a commission-based compensation structure for so long that, you know what, I, I just wanted to stop selling. I just wanted to stop calling people and asking for introductions. And just I just wanted to sit in a role where the only interaction I'd really have is with captive audience or internal company people, basically. Got it. Um, and that, that is definitely what HSBC provided. Um, they provided the books of businesses because again, these were clients or customers of the bank at each branch on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to work with all of the bankers, the, and I forget kind of the, the individual names of the roles, but there are bankers, wealth managers, advisors, man, like managers of the branches, tellers of the branches. I got to work with kind of all of those positions. And the idea was to take a look at each branch's um, book, basically, and figure out a way to increase revenue. So whether it's a wealth management product, retail banking, insurance, uh, lending, those are kind of the four main products that frankly any bank has to offer. Um, when you're talking about what can I go to a bank, what can I buy, what can they do for me? But did you feel if like I you had the experience to roll out this revenue or to, to set up this plan for all of the 
the the retail branches of HSBC in Manhattan? I mean, that's what you were you were tasked to do, or was this a thing where like you did it for one and they're like do it for all of them? So I so yeah, so the latter. So I did it for one. Um, I you know I how did you even know to do that? How did you know even to say hey these insurance products are good? We should be pushing these to our clients. How did you? That's that's a good question, and and actually I didn't. Um, I had. I had a good base of knowledge for lending um, because of my experience both in real estate and at Morgan Stanley. We did a lot of um, like portfolio loans and, and loans yeah. in general. Yeah. And obviously I had a good understanding of, of wealth management um, and the different types of products that wealth management can offer, whether it's mutual funds, ETFs, uh, SMAs, or kind of anything in between. Okay. Um, what I didn't really have a good grasp on was the retail banking or the insurance side. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I can tell you is that the bank, um, more so in those two areas than the two that I already had knowledge in, but especially in retail banking and in insurance, they're very, they, they offer a lot of resources to the people who work there to increase their knowledge in those products, okay. um, whether it's retail banking or insurance. And they did really provide a lot of resources that, um, if you took advantage, you, you could learn a lot. Yep. Um, but to kind of give you an idea of how, how I was able to be successful on the front end, I think this is, uh, 2013 through 15. I just, I had to double check myself. Yeah. Um, if we look back 2013, 15, between that time period, I, I can't exactly remember what time, but mortgage rates were, were dropping drastically during that period of time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was kind of really simple to, you know, have bank rate open um, or just get the mortgage rates from your, from your branch, you know, mortgage associate, understand what the rates were for, I don't know, a 10 year arm and a 30 year fixed. Mm-hmm. And, and when you think about just access to data, and this is kind of one of the inefficiencies that, that bothered me, you know, this bank has, has incredible access to data mm-hmm. that, you know, that, in my opinion, isn't utilized necessarily correctly. Um, but essentially what we did was go into every single client file, essentially, take a look at what their mortgage rates were and when they closed their mortgage. And 99% of them were two to three hundred basis points above where HSBC was lending at the time. So it's a very easy conversation to say, hey, you know, my name is so-and-so, introduce yourself, tell them that you can help them refinance. Um, for minimal or any cost. And that there's was a big, really there was a big enough gap in where rates were and where yeah. a lot of these mortgages were. So it's like, why aren't we actively calling these people and exactly collecting the points, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and that was also a really great way to, to start building rapport with, frankly, with your clients, because if they're a branch client, they hold money at the branch, they're your client, whether you're a banker, a manager, a teller, or whoever. Mm-hmm. Call just call these people and and start having conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, kind of taking my my lending knowledge combined with my cold calling knowledge and saying, don't email, pick up the phone, call them, talk them through this, introduce yourself, and you know what you're you're going to get at least a call out of it, a touch point, or at the very best, you get a new mortgage out of it. Mm-hmm. So we very quickly, I mean, the mortgage business ramped up significantly um, very quickly thereafter. And, um, and from there, you know, learned a lot more about insurance products, help people put together insurance types of products, um, so on and so forth. And, and kind of just ran that worked. I think, 
I think I ended up working at every single bank branch in HSBC in Manhattan um, for at least at least a little while, at least a month or so. So I hope they started paying you really well for this work. Yeah, it was okay. It was okay. <laughs> Do you mind sharing a range of what uh, your comp was there for those couple of years? Were you making six um, figures at this point? Six figures, yes. Mm-hmm. Very low six figures. Yeah. Let's, okay. let's just put it at just barely crossing. It's surprising six. because you're, you're driving a lot of revenue. Surprise. I mean, you got off, you got out of the commission structure, but I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was interesting. But again, I think that, you know, you're more like internal training. I'm, again, I'm trying to be political about it, but I think yeah. there are a lot of inefficiencies that, um, or rather I'll call them frictional costs. Of course. That, it's in any that larger are kind of included in these bureaucratic uh, yeah. style banks mm-hmm. where. So I see a pattern think, here. You're getting frustrated by the large institutions. So it's time to break out on your own. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let's, let's leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, no. So yeah. So tell me about the next step. So you're, you know, you're doing a year and a half almost at HSBC after you're, you know, almost two years at Morgan Stanley. Tell me um, what was the next step for you? What were you, were you still interviewing kind of uh, pretty heavily here? Tell me what was going on. Sure. Um, so at this point you've owned your apartment now for four years. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> almost yeah, nice. Yeah. Okay. Do you still own that apartment, by the way? Is it in Manhattan? I do, yeah. Very nice. Yes. Um, so, so working at HSBC started, you know, started trying to put some feelers out there, what I wanted to do. And honestly, I got um, two calls, let's say, or two, I, I whittled it down to two options. Mm-hmm. I could either A, become a consultant at PwC. Mm-hmm. Uh, or B, I can kind of go into this venture opportunity that was super uncertain. And I really wanted to be a consultant. Um, but at the time, the only reason I did not end up taking the consulting job mm-hmm. is that they were not flexible on the salary. I had been working already for, at that point, a considerable amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it would be back, I think it would be back to 60, but it would also be all the way down to like a, like an entry level consultant in, in the firm. And why, why do you think that was? You think it was just because you, you had, had no been, consulting experience. Yeah. You're in wealth management for yeah. so long yeah. and inter, kind of internal um, consulting at HSBC. So you weren't, you had nothing truly like no true relevance. They're trying to push you all the way back there. Exactly. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't budge there. So tell me what pushed you towards this uh, more entrepreneurial venture. So, so the VC, um, or let's say entrepreneurial venture, we'll call it that because we uh, kind of tell you what we did there, but um, they, they at the very least matched my base from HSBC. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I mean, which is around a hundred. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Base. Let's say it was a hundred. Uh, yeah. I think it might've been a smidge over that, but yeah. Okay. Whatever. So they were able to match it as a kind of as a starting point, obviously with incentives and bonuses and all that stuff structured into, to later, later in the company yep. um, and ownership in the actual, in the company. Uh, so I said that, you know what, I've also always wanted to be in VC and um, may as well take this opportunity. I'm not, I'm not losing anything economically. Um, and, and at the very least it'll, it'll give me this, this base of knowledge as opposed to the consulting base of knowledge. And, 
who knows, maybe I'll end up raising my own VC fund and becoming, you know, the next Andreessen Horowitz or something like that. Okay. So this was, this was kind of a, when you say VC, it's really inside a family office. They were looking to start um, investing in early stage startups. Is that the idea? Yes. So, like it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, a typical a VC fund where there's LPs and they're raising. Right, right, okay. Right. So yeah, just to be clear for the people, how did you even come across this? Tell me, was this something you were looking for or just kind of fell in your lap? So they reached out to me while I was at HSBC. Um, so I, yeah, I guess it kind of fell into my lap. Um, how did they find you? LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn. Yeah. And, um, uh, I took a call with them, understood what they were trying to do. Uh, principles were, uh, well capitalized. Um, I built, uh, kind of one company before sold it kind of having to do with crowdfunding, but not really. Mm-hmm. And then their idea was to create this massive crowdfunding portal where, where they would also be participating in, in companies. Mm-hmm. So I thought it seemed like a really cool idea. At the time, I was also, uh, I would say, not knee deep, but about ankle deep in, in my own startup that I was um, fooling around with called CoGifter. Um, and I'll kind of, I'll weave that story in, in through, sure. through this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, you know what? I, I'm kind of trying to build something on my own. Um, you know, this could help bolster that startup in and of itself. Uh, this will keep me afloat with, with what they're paying me. Um, and also I'm, I'm really curious of, of how VC works, how everything, you know, happens, how things are funded, how companies are, everything from origination to diligence, investment to portfolio management. Sure. And, um, and I really got a chance to learn, um, all of those steps, um, in regards to kind of a venture portfolio, how companies are originated. Was there somebody there that could teach you a little bit that had the VC background that had been doing this or so, so you were kind of on your own? Um, I don't want to say that they were, um, experts in venture capital. Yeah. They had maybe a year to 18 months head start uh, on me in terms of like a learning curve. I learned really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, just again, because of the eclectic background and it only gets more eclectic from there. Um, so how much money did you have to put to like, how much money was available for you to put to work and how, what was like the uh, mandate? I think it was about $50 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't quote me on that. It it might've been more. There might've been, we definitely, well, it says you allocated 80 million to early stage. Was that so? Okay. So it was 80 million. So it was about 50 with a probably maybe 30 for follow on rounds and, and, uh, rights afterwards. Okay. And this is all from this one family office or is it through this platform that they were building? Both. Both. Okay. Yeah. Both. Okay. Um, and the idea was tech enabled seed stage companies, um, that, you know, that maybe needed some help with presentations or models or operating strategy or something along those lines, uh, that we would then help kind of get established. And then ultimately they would go and and syndicate the rest of their rounds of capital through the crowdfunding portal. Mm. Um, so I was there with them for about 18 months and that might be, no, eight months. I was there with them for about eight months. So under a year, um, the, the first kind of fund, I'll call it, I'll put in that in quotes, um, was allocated and, and they decided to pivot away from that model that we were running into, I suppose what would be called a kind of an exclusive angel investment group or a membership by member investment group, which essentially means that I'm an angel investor. I'm going to pay this company X amount of dollars per year. Mm-hmm. And for that 
I will be receiving pre-vetted startups, some, something along those lines. Okay. And, um, and the position that they wanted to put me in was like a membership advisor, hmm. which, you know, I'll never forget sitting in the boardroom thinking like, oh my God, these guys want like the person I sign up with at Equinox is a membership advisor. They basically want me running around and having people sign up for a thousand or two thousand dollars to basically get rights to these investments. And I'm thinking to myself, like, there's no way I can call a single person I know and, and say that number one, this is what I'm doing after all the time that they know me. And number two, even like pay for access to something like this. It right. just to me, it didn't make sense. Yeah. Um, so I left, um, I left the, I left the week after I got back from my honeymoon <laughs> and with uh, nothing lined up, uh, with nothing lined up. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that as blissful as the honeymoon was the next couple of weeks, even the year, uh, <laughs> was, was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I left. I left with no plans. I left because I could not be there anymore. And I left because I was finally in a small firm that I again could you not couldn't, do. You reality. couldn't be there anymore because it was just, just not, they wanted you to do this. They were pushing you to do this and you really just didn't want to. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. you didn't, you didn't, you couldn't pretend. Right. Exactly. Anymore. Okay. So, um, so and you're, com- you're confident enough. You have enough in the bank where you feel like you can get somewhere else, get on your feet. <sighs> Uh, yes, at the time, I can say now with absolute certainty, there's no amount of confidence and no amount of money in the bank that, that will prepare you for doing something like that. Um, I'm super glad that I did it. Um, but I'm saying that from the perspective of now running a, a proper firm that is, that is growing pretty quickly and, and making money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can say that for the first year, uh, after that, so pretty much all of 2015 and I think 2016, mm-hmm. um, I made $3,000 wow. for the year, um, uh, which it's is because you were searching maybe. Yeah, because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Did I want to raise company for startups and get paid on commission only? Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't, you know, I had my license, I hung it somewhere. Uh, then I wanted to do consulting work, but I didn't really have a consulting background. So how did you find your way? What eventually, <laughs> so I, it's, you know, it's tough because you have such an eclectic background. You've done so many things is, is you're probably asking yourself like, well, what do I like best? What was most interesting? Like, so, so first year was super hard. First year was hard. I think only because I didn't know what my own value proposition was. When people would ask me what I did, I can, you know, I, I can spend 20 minutes telling them, but I couldn't really like, look, here's what I do. This is what you need. Hire me. This is how much it's going to cost. Like, I didn't even have an understanding of putting that together, let alone what that was. So people who were calling me or who wanted to hire me, I would basically say yes, and then ask them what the question was. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, that slowly kind of developed into okay, here are the two or three things I'm doing that are working. Here are the 17 things I'm doing that just aren't working and I'm not making any money on. Hmm. Um, what were those and how did you come across them? So when you say people would hire me, like at this point, are you working as a consultant, like a part-time yeah, consultant? So, so a lot of times I'd be hired by very early stage startups to help them raise capital and put together some of their fundraising materials. Yep. So about six, maybe six months into it um, or more, 
uh, probably nine months into it. And that's where I got my first client and kind of how I started building the business. Mm-hmm. I, I started breaking those two things to engagements, so to speak, into different uh, deliverables where I would charge uh, money as a consultant for putting together their fundraising materials. Mm-hmm. And then I would take a commission on any fundraise that, that I would help them with. Great. And, and what I quickly learned is maybe because of my, I don't know, I'm not going to say my Rolodex, my limited contacts in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that not that I was burning bridges, but it didn't really make sense for me to continuously make these introductions. Um, to people that either weren't investing um, or, or had to, or were turning these deals down. Hmm. So purely from, um, I don't know, saving my own face perspective, um, I took that out of the business model entirely. And even more so, we raised the commission, meaning the commission, you start up, stop doing it. We don't raise capital. Um, It was, it was purely, um, it was purely a just, we're going to just do the actual prep materials for it. Yeah. So, so pretty much after the first year, uh, you know, I changed the business model of the company. And again, the company is just me to, you know, I do not raise capital. I won't solicit investors on your behalf. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'll do, I will help prepare, do your financial modeling, your deck, all that good stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so second year, 2016, that's kind of what, what we started doing. Um, uh, and I also synced up with a company called TopTal. Uh, TopTal is kind of a marketing operations platform for consultants. Mm-hmm. So I slowly started. They actually started. Develop. They actually started with developers, I believe. They, yeah. So they started with developers. Yeah. Um, in 2015 or 16, they bought a company called Skillbridge. Yeah. I knew the founder of that company, and that was a that was a financial consulting platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name was Raj. Yeah. And he actually brought me in as one of the first financial consultants on TopTal. Cool. That's kind of an aside. Yeah. Um, so, so basically started the business that way of this consulting firm. Uh, I'll help you put together a presentation deck. Um, I'll talk you through the narrative and, and kind of prepare you for the pitch. I'll ask you all the questions that I would have asked you as a VC to, to give you better prep. I'll build you a financial model that will make sense for you, for the investors. You can adjust it. It's not going to be a 40 tab model. It's going to be a three tab model with one tab of assumptions um, you know, and one tab of summary, one tab broken out month by month. And I would do the valuation analysis and slowly, slowly, the business started growing. And I noticed kind of this whole, now looking back on everything I've said in, in this recording, frictional cost, um, and efficiency of, of, of companies. So, so I noticed that a lot of frictional cost that was being offset to my clients early on in the business was around research and analysis and design work. Um, so I was separately, I mean, for a market, for market research or valuation analysis, I was sitting behind a computer. I was spending hours upon hours first gathering the data, then compiling the data, then reporting on that data. Um, on design, I wasn't a designer. I'm not a designer. So what I would do is complete all the content of a, of a project, of a, of a piece of collateral. Then I would have to either find a designer or work with a design firm Mm-hmm. explain to them everything about the company, send them the deck, get the price, have them do it, have them redo it in 99% of the time because they didn't understand me or it was whatever. So I recognized this frictional cost kind of in the second to third year of the business. 
And, and those and are the call, even though, even though you're a consultant for top of you're calling it the business because you're now building up clients on the side as well. well right. So I'm, I'm building yeah. up, you know, clients in, in my and you company. Had, you had founded um, your company, which you called Fiddleman and Company, right? So the company was originally called AI Capital Advisors. Okay. And, and I'll kind of get to that in, in just a moment. So, sure. so yes, consulting through TopTal, they're introducing me to clients. I'm doing work for them, mm-hmm. uh, slowly building my own consulting firm, you know, offering essentially the same services, both sides. You can happy to go through TopTal. Uh, yeah. In fact, you know, I, I often push people to go through TopTal even today on the smaller engagements mm-hmm. um, because I, I very much believe and you don't, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a big fan of their platform in general. Yeah. Um, so slowly kind of building both sides of the business, um, the research and um, analysis piece, the design piece are actually the two functions that I hired for internally first full time. Um, and, and really just purely to support me in my engagements mm-hmm. and slowly over time, um, I, I started kind of building enough of, of engagements where I was working or, or not working, but let's say billing uh, and working probably 100 to 120 hours per week. Mm-hmm. With um, you and in in your two teammates. Between the two, right. Yeah. Well, between the two, between TopTal and, and my own consulting work. Yeah. Uh, so I was, sitting, I was sitting with one of my best friends. He is a manager or senior manager or something at Deloitte. Mm-hmm. And he said something to me really interesting, which was, Jeff, you could either be a consultant or you can run a consulting business, but you can't do both. Right. And, and this is years ago, he said it, I I can remember it as clear as it was like 10 minutes ago that he said that to me. And it really struck a chord Mm -hmm. where he was right. I mean, there's 24 hours in a day. So the maximum I could bill was 24 hours per day. Just that is pure maximum. I can't bill 25. Right. Um, Yeah, sure. I can bill 10, 10, 10 and 10 to different clients, but I'm not going to do that. Right. So, so in my mind, how do I grow this? How do I go beyond just myself? It's by bringing on other people that can essentially do the tasks that either help me with some of my tasks that I'm doing, like modeling or presentation building or something else, mm-hmm. or purely bringing on other management consultants. Right. So, so about a year or probably two years ago now, so three years into the business, started bringing on management consultants. Um, all of our consultants are currently 1099. And again, we have a core team that now consists of a director of operations, um, analysts, and designers and also a content manager. So how big is the team now? Uh, it's 20 people. It's great. Um, so, so essentially the reason for that kind of going back to, to answer your question, mm-hmm. um, the business started expanding from just presentation and fundraise collateral presentation. As we worked closer and closer with companies, as they became successful in raising their capital or negotiating their capital, investors were giving these companies due diligence lists. Show us your operating manual. Show us your policies and procedures. Show us your underwriting manual for specialty finance companies. Mm. And oftentimes these companies either didn't have them or didn't have them in a formal document to present to investors. Right. So as we were working with companies, we also, as a firm, began growing with companies in terms of what we're able to offer our clients. So, so whereas we first started with you know, simple fundraise collateral preparation without actually raising capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, we continue to do all of that. We will help companies go through the diligence with investors. We will often act as interim COO for the business, helping them formalize and, and, and uh, document their operations. Yep. And we then, just went through this exact exercise with Wall Street Oasis. It's very time. It's interesting. The whole master procedure document is a lifesaver. 
Yeah. And funny enough, so, so we were doing that. I found myself as an interim CFO for four different companies at once. And that's why we started bringing on more management consultants. For sure. Um, so it was really interesting to kind of, so that's about, uh, like I said, two years ago, three years into the business. Um, and finally, uh, maybe six months ago, I, you know, I hit the pause button and I said, guys, wait, um, we need to consult on ourselves. Let's literally take our playbook. Let's take what we do for every other company and let's just look internally and let's look at ourselves. I mean, it's, it's grown great. And we're at the stage of, of time. Do you mind where, sharing like uh, the revenue or profit or any of that stuff? I mean, with 20 so, people, you can kind of get a sense, but it's probably yeah, sure. Um, so, so this year we're on track to hit over a million dollars in revenue, gross revenue. Great. Um, that's actually, that's a 300% increase from last year. Not um, bad. <laughs> not bad growth. Which is not bad. Um, so, and, and that's kind of the numbers that we've seen, we've seen every year over year growth so far. Uh, so hopefully that'll, that'll keep going regardless year, of 3 million. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, um, so looked at us internally, did our own kind of consulting on our own firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the reason for the rebrand also. The mm-hmm. firm was called AI Capital Advisors. Um, initially it stood for alternative investment capital advisors. We're getting calls every other day. Are you an AI cam- company with artificial intelligence? Right. Um, oh, your capital advisors. I have this great investment for you. Will you invest in our company? Uh, <laughs> will you show your, your clients or your wealth management clients? The branding fund? was a problem. Yeah. The branding was yeah. So, so branding was a huge issue. Um, you know, I did a bunch of research, uh, both kind of from a, our own research analyst perspective, what are most management consulting company named? How are they named? Um, I really actually the founders. Yeah. The last yeah, name. I, of the founders. You know what? Personally, I didn't want to name it after myself. I had all these different domains picked out and cool names that I wanted to use. Mm-hmm. And nine out of 10, both people I spoke to and reports I spoke to said that, you know, if you're building a management consulting company, you may as well use your name that way. You know, when you communicate with clients, it's not just a name on the door. It's your name on the door. Right. Um, you know, so, so again, I, I took that to heart. I, I still do all the QA that comes out of our firm. I'm still closely in contact with every client that ever comes through our firm. It's never just sent to a, mm-hmm. a management consultant and, and they don't hear from me. So I, I very much. Eventually you may have to let go of that. Yeah. Well, look, here's, here's, uh, and I know you have to go soon, but here's how I'll position us in, in the world of consulting. Mm-hmm. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, you had McKinsey, Bain, BCG. Uh, well, rather, I guess Bain came out of BCG, but you had the, the big consulting firms in management right. side. And they were consulting the usual characters, Coca-Cola, Disney, IBM, and so on. Mm-hmm. And those companies at the time, maybe at $300 million market caps, um, you know, and that was like, wow, $300 million market cap. Fast forward 30 years, uh, these companies have market caps well over a billion dollars. In Amazon's case, it's well, well over a billion dollars. But they still retain and work with the same types of consulting firms. So what I've noticed is a huge gap in the kind of what I'll call late stage uh, startup and lower middle market realm of, of not having, you know, a proper management consulting firm within that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of smaller ones. Uh, I personally never aim for Fiddleman and Company to be a 40,000 person firm. 
Right. Um, but by the same token, I absolutely do expect that within the next two to three years, having our name be in the same sentence as a Bikinzi, as a Bain, as a BCG. Hmm. Great. That's awesome. It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about like uh, looking back on your story now that you just kind of recap before we call the pod. Is there anything, any takeaways, any kind of words of wisdom you would have given your younger self kind of uh, now that you've found yourself here? Oh, man. Um, look, grass is always greener on the other side. Um, you know, I look at some of my friends who've worked in one job for the past 15 years, have, you know, absolute job security, getting paid really well, whether it's banking or, or otherwise. And, um, you know, I, I can definitely say that, like, it must be nice. You know, you, you get vacation days, you work nine to five, you don't have to work on the weekend. Um, you know, I'll say if you work for somebody, you work for one person. If you work for yourself, every client is, an, is a different boss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can say that I'm able to do today. I'm able to have the conversations that I do have with such a wide variety of companies because of my eclectic background. Mm-hmm. So I can talk about CPG companies. I built an insurance company that ended up selling to a private equity firm. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in real estate. I've worked in SaaS and B2B, B2C, direct to consumer, marketplace, you name it. And, and I probably touched the business in one way, shape or form. So I'm extremely fortunate to have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even more so having been able to do, to build a business based on what I love. And I love learning. And, and I look at consulting as just that every client um, is, is kind of a, a new point of learning that I'm able to use all of my collective experience and knowledge to benefit that client, but I'm also learning something new in, in working on that client. Um, you know, move fast, uh, especially when you're young, when you are, the older you get, the harder it is to move and to come up with a reason for a move. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, I did all of this or I, most of it, like I said, I, I made my first big leap right after getting married. Um, we had some money saved away. We didn't have high living expenses. We were able to survive basically for that first year with no income. But then it got really hard until, until I was able to do some hard work. and not. And now, you have, now you have a kid. And now I have a kid. Um, and I'm, I'm still growing and building this business. But, you know, if that happened today, I, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. Yeah. Um, so move fast, move young. Um, more and more companies are finding that acceptable. Um, but at the same time, you know, what I, what I give recommendations to my younger sister, to what I will say to my son when, when he's kind of going into the professional world is work in as many different places as you can. Um, it's, it's easy to say, I want to do so many different things. Um, it's much easier to work in a place and say, I don't want to do that. So if you think you want to be in VC, go, go work in VC and figure out if you want to do it or if you don't. So the best thing that can happen is you learn something and you say, you know what, this is not for me. I don't want to do it. Then go into banking, go into publishing, go into retail. I mean, go into whatever you want to go into. Um, as long as you can come out of it and saying either, yes, I want to do this or no, absolutely never again in my life. Do I want to do this. Fair. I love that. Some great wisdom. Jeffrey, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story. Yeah, thanks so much for for having me and um, looking forward to to catching up again soon. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.
Oh, 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 oh,